together Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So far as we have sought to capture a glimpse of our excellent Christ in these first few phrases of the first verses of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, we've discovered that Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, but that he is the creator of all that exists, and he is the heir of all that exists, And he is the radiance or the brightness or the brightest beam of God's glory. But just in case somehow we've missed the author's point, he continues. The fourth excellency of Christ is found in verse 3. Read with me verse 3 again. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his glory. Nature, the exact representation of his nature. In other words, the only way to see what God looks like is to look at Jesus. The only way we can ever see God is to look to Christ Jesus. We can't see the Father. We can't see the Holy Spirit. But Jesus came to earth in bodily form so that we might see God. John even said in John chapter 1, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. I'd like for you to turn there with me, John chapter 1. There's another portion of this I want you to see. That's verse 14. This is such an incredible scripture because John begins by telling us about this word. Because back in the ancient Greek philosophy, they thought of whatever it was that created all that is as the word. And so John begins there and says, let me tell you about this word. The Word was in the beginning with God. All things were created by Him, and there wasn't a single thing that was made that He didn't make. He is not a created being, but He created all things. And then He says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. John is saying, here is Jesus theologically, 
And now here is Jesus, according to personal testimony. I saw him with my own eyes. I believe John is referring to that period that we've talked about on a couple of occasions in this series of messages. The day when Peter, James, and John were invited to go with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. They had no idea what was going to happen. They thought they were just going to pray, which they did, and fell asleep, as usual. And suddenly, Jesus shone with great glory. And you remember, Elijah and Moses appeared, and the cloud came, and the cloud actually spoke. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. John said, I saw that with my own eyes. I'm not asking you just to believe something that I heard from someone else. I am telling you to believe what I saw with my own eyes. And we've seen this before. But maybe what we haven't seen is John continues in this explanation of who Jesus is. He continues to give evidence. Look at verse 29. Now he's talking about John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now John the Baptist, on what authority do you say that? I mean, that is an absolutely astonishing claim. We've been waiting for centuries, millennia for the Messiah to come. By whose authority do you say this is the Lamb of God? John explains, verse 30, This is he on behalf of whom I said, John the Baptist is saying, After me comes a man who is higher in rank than I, for he existed before me. That's important because Jesus was born after John. John is saying, yes, but he existed before me. Verse 31, I did not recognize him. Here's John the skeptic. I saw him. I didn't realize he was the Messiah. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. And I did not recognize him. There he says it again. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon, this is the one who baptizes how? In the Holy Spirit, I myself have seen, John says, and have testified that this is the Son of God. The Apostle John says, I saw his glory. And furthermore, remember what John the Baptist said? John the Baptist said, I saw his glory too. And Peter says again and again, both through Mark and through his own epistles, I was there and I saw his glory. This is not just a rabbi. This is not just a prophet. This is God in flesh come. And we have seen him. Now, we cannot see him. But John refers to Jesus as he whom you have not seen yet believe. In the epistle to the Hebrews, we know something about these beloved brothers and sisters. We know that they came to faith the same way we did. They never saw Jesus. In fact, they were told about Jesus by people who never saw him. 
but by the testimony of those who did see him, shared the gospel with others who then came to the Hebrew believers wherever they were and told them about Jesus. They came to him the same way we did. And now they were being tempted after many years, perhaps, of faithfulness to turn back, to turn away from him. And the author of Hebrews is starting off this book, telling them the message of the book being, don't turn back, don't turn back, stay true, it'll be worth it in the end. Remember, Hebrews 11, remember all of the saints who've gone before, who'd suffered so many great things, and yet in the end... They're waiting for us so that we collectively can receive the reward together. Be faithful. Don't quit. Don't turn back under pressure. To us, it's not pressure, is it? It's prosperity. It's comfort. Don't turn away because heaven doesn't look so good because we've got heaven on earth. Don't turn away. You have no idea about comfort. You have no idea what reward awaits you. Be faithful. Why should we be be faithful to him? It's because he is the exact representation of God's nature. Just as the image and superscription on a coin exactly correspond to the device on the die, so the Son of God bears the very stamp of his nature. The Greek word for impression here is really interesting. I don't usually go into Greek words unless they either stand out intuitively compared to the English or unless there's something that you just absolutely have to know because I want you to trust your English Bibles. But this is an interesting word because the pronunciation of this word is this, character, impression. Jesus is the exact impression. He is the exact character of the Father. Just as the glory of God really is his radiance, so the beginning of God, the being of God, is really in Christ, who is the impress, the exact representation, the character of all the embodiment of God. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 2, 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells, how? In bodily form. He is God. He is not just a, a manifestation of a divine being, he is God. To see the Lord Jesus Christ is to see what the Father is like. And so when we read about Jesus in the Gospels, we see how the Father acts. We see how he thinks, how he speaks, how he relates to people. When we see Jesus interacting with people, we should think that's how the Father interacts with people. Because the Son is the visible manifestation of God. God has spoken in His Son. This is the ultimate communication to man. His ultimate and final word. Now let me remind you of what the author of Hebrews was asking of these, these Jewish believers. Turn your back on everything you've ever known about religion. Almost. 
realize that everything you've ever known about how to come to God was merely a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ, who has come, who was the suffering Savior, according to Isaiah 53, which most Jews, most Jewish synagogues won't even read because it's so controversial. They don't want a suffering Messiah. But the author of Hebrews is saying he came just as he said. And he is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the entire sacrificial system. He's greater than the incense. He's greater than the Ark of the Covenant. He's greater than everything that was the, that was the, the substance of the religion and culture that you have held so dearly. The author of Hebrews is saying, turn away from all of that. And it's as if the Hebrew brothers are responding back. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to hear from God. For us to turn our back on all of that, we are going to have to hear from God. And so you see what the author is doing. You have heard from God. You've heard from Him again and again and again. You've heard from Him through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we proclaim Him. He is the Word of God. He is God's final Word. But there's more. Not only is Jesus creator of all things, heir of all things, radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature, he is also the sustainer of all that exists. The sustainer of all that exists. This is why we should trust him, regardless of how comfortable the comforts or how severe the persecution Nothing should distract us from faith and obedience and trust and love of Him. Verse 3, again. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. That's a short statement as all of these have been, but they are so full of meaning. We've already learned that Jesus is the creator of all that exists. Now the author gives us another essential piece of information about the excellencies of Christ. Why is he excellent? Because he upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ is not only the creator of all things, he is the sustainer of all that exists. The word uphold here is particularly interesting in the Greek because it does not simply indicate that Christ supports all things. The word actually carries the idea of carrying. He is carrying all things to their divinely appointed conclusion. Everything that God has ordained will be carried to completion by the living Christ. The difference here in meaning is the difference between one that is static and one that is dynamic. Now this is important because there are a lot of foolish, false teachings that come down the pike. They have, they're cyclical. They come up, they disappear, they come back. 
And one of those was called deism. And this single phrase deals the death blow to deism. In the late 16 and 1700s, deism was the theology of choice among the intellectual elite. These were the days of the Enlightenment, also known as the Age of Reason. It was a period of time when, to give you a little historical context, people were sick of all the fighting that was happening over religion. You remember the Crusades? You remember everything the Roman Catholic Church was doing to everybody who didn't agree with them? And then there was the Reformation, and as bizarre as it sounds, the Reformers who brought the gospel back persecuted everybody who didn't agree with every point, and people were sick of it. In the meantime, some really um, intelligent men began inventing things that started to make life easier and started to give explanation to how things work in the world and in the universe. They invented the telescope. They invented all manner of, you know, printing press and uh, every conceivable new widget of the age was invented during this period to make life better and to give explanation. This was the period of Sir Isaac Newton, who perhaps had the most profound impact to bring about the Age of Enlightenment because he wrote a book that explained what he called the laws of nature. One of those laws we know is gravity. We know the second law of thermodynamics. There are a number of laws, inertia. And when Isaac Newton revealed these laws, people said, wow, everything is explainable. We can understand how everything works, and we can invent things that help us use these natural laws to our own favor. Wow. They started connecting dots in the wrong direction and said, since all of these things are controlled by natural laws, gravity being preeminent among them, then maybe it is that God created everything and then set it all to work together by these natural laws that we are discovering, and then left it. And we are essentially alone to figure it all out and to make the best use of it that we can. Eventually, philosophers like Voltaire began putting this stuff in print. The idea that the universe should be thought of as some magnificent clock created by some divine creator who put it all together and wound it up tight and set it down to run all by itself, and one day it will wear out. But this is not at all consistent with the God who revealed himself in the Bible. God's word never pictures a cosmic watchmaker who creates the universe, winds it up, and leaves it to run its own course independently of him. To the contrary, the Bible shows God to be one who desires intimate interaction with all that he has made, who has designed all things to be personally carried by his Son to their appointed end, so that there is not even one maverick molecule in the universe that is outside his sovereign and intimate supervision. Amen. 
He is Lord of all. He has not abandoned us. You know why deism failed? Because people face death. And they had to come to the conclusion, if God just left us here, then nothing has any meaning. And death is meaningless. Our ultimate enemy has won. But he has not abandoned us. He is not watching contrary to former popular music from a distance. No, he is intimately involved in every aspect of the living creation. Voltaire was wrong about God. Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson were wrong about God. Even Benjamin Franklin, when the Constitutional Convention came around, he had to backpedal away from his deism. The Continental Convention of 1787, I'm sorry, the Constitutional Convention, 1787, the war was over. The people were living in these United States without a constitution. And so the constitution, Constitutional Convention came together. Benjamin Franklin was the oldest delegate, 81 years old. He had seen God's providential intervention throughout the Revolutionary War on countless occasions. And every time he did, it fired a shot through his deism. He saw the bulletproof George Washington. Amazing stories of God's provision on the leadership of this new land. And so when the convention faced its greatest crisis, it seemed that their attempt at a national constitution was all but lost. And it was Benjamin Franklin, 81 years old, stood up and he said these words as a perhaps former deist. The longer I live, the more I see that there is a God who intervenes in the affairs of men. And then he did something that turned the whole tide of the Constitutional Convention. He invited that convention to get on their knees before God and pray for wisdom to settle the controversy. And upon getting up from their knees, someone made a suggestion. In history, it is called the Great Compromise, by which we now have two houses of Congress, and by which the Constitution of the United States was finally ratified. You see, deism was not only a hopeless philosophy that left man to fend for himself in every crisis. It was also a godless philosophy that exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images made in the form of man. We made God in our own image. We thought of him as something that he was not. And we worshipped at a false altar. The same as the Israelites did when they came out of Egypt and they got to Sinai. And who knows where Moses is. He's been up there with God for 40 days. He must be dead. So let us make an image. And they created the golden calf. But they said, not This is our new God, but rather, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. This is the image of the one true God. And for that reason, God destroyed 3,000 of those men. Why? Because they did not worship him according to his word. 
They made God in their own image. The image that appealed to their mind. But He is not a God that we can make. He is a God that we must obey. You see, deism was hopeless because it was idolatry. It was not true. But the God of the Bible is one who sovereignly and securely sustains all that he has created. I want you to think about the complexity of all that's involved in that. Let me give you just a taste. Consider, for example, what instant destruction would happen if the earth's rotation slowed just a little. The sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it were any closer to us, we'd burn up. If we were a little further away from it, we would freeze. Our globe is tilted on an exact angle, 23 degrees, and it provides for us the four seasons. If it were not for this provision continually, year after year, Vapors from the ocean would move north and south and develop monstrous ice continents. If the moon did not retain its exact distance from the earth, the ocean tides would inundate the land completely, completely, and it would do it twice a day. After the first flooding, of course, the others would not matter as far as we were concerned. We'd be gone. If the ocean floors were merely a few feet deeper than they are today, The carbon dioxide and oxygen balance of the Earth's atmosphere would be completely upset and no animal or plant life could exist. If the atmosphere did not remain at its present density, if it thinned out even a little bit, many of the meteors which now harmlessly burn up when they hit the Earth's atmosphere would constantly bombard us. We would either have to live underground or we would have to build meteor-proof buildings. Our world lives in a very delicate balance and what keeps it all from just falling apart what keeps one element of this from changing the word of his power it's the only thing and that's the point is that the precise balance required to sustain life on this planet is so delicate that the slightest Inconsistency could tip it into a lifeless destruction. And how does it stay in perfect balance? The Lord Jesus Christ, the creator and heir of all things, carries it perfectly along. And he does it by the word of his power, which means, this is great, he does it effortlessly. He never works up a sweat carrying the earth and the solar system and the universe. He just speaks and it all consists. It all stays together exactly as it should. All that is required is his powerful word. God has spoken and he has spoken in his son. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes of Jesus. I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him 
and for him. And he is before all things. And listen, in him all things hold together. Think about it, beloved. The only reason man exists on planet Earth is because Christ has spoken. And the only reason we continue to exist is because His Word upholds us. And this, beloved, should bring us a great sense of peace to our souls. The truth alone, this truth, should drive anxiety from our hearts. God in Christ is absolutely in control. In all of the universe, there exists not even one atom that is not under His control. All is under His authority. Nothing can happen to us apart from His will. We are safe. We are secure. And we will not pass from this life one moment before God has ordained. I remember when I was at Word of Life Bible Institute, Jack Wurtzen was still alive. Many of you don't know him. He was Billy Graham's counterpart, except he was the faithful counterpart who would not give in to the pressure of Catholicism. I won't go there. He used to say to us, Brothers, the safest and happiest place in all the world is in the will of God. It doesn't matter where He leads you. If He leads you to Peru to die... It'll be the happiest and safest place you could ever be. You will not die one moment before He is ordained. Why? Because He carries you. He leads you. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He is our Holy Father. And this is why David prayed, When I am afraid... I put my trust in Him. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Psalm 56, verse 4. And so if every detail of the cosmos is sustained by the word of Christ, then you can be sure that your life will be tenderly upheld and carried along until He graciously calls you home. Do you see why the author of Hebrews started his letter with these precious persecuted saints by pointing them to the excellencies of Christ? Not to self-help. Not to the newest fad theology, and there are plenty of them. Not to the newest idea, the newest wave that is sweeping the church. But to Christ. Do you see why the apostles called us to devoting ourselves not to some complex system of works righteousness, but to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, to love Him, to serve Him, to be loyal to Him, whether the pressure upon us comes from persecution or prosperity, to find and be found faithful. If every detail in the cosmos is sustained by the word of Christ, then he is sustaining us. 
And only this kind of truth has the, the power to sustain us when we are tempted, as these brothers were, to turn away. So how do we see the glory of Jesus Christ? Well, we see it by being reminded that Jesus is the creator of all things, that he is the heir of all things, that he is the radiator of God's glory, that he is the representation of God's nature and the sustainer of all that exists. But there's more. There's more. The author of Hebrews would remind us also that he is the purifier of every believing heart. He is the purifier of every believing heart. Look again, verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sins, something happened. But before we get to that something, let's think about that first phrase. When he made purification for sins. When he had made purification for sins, Christ Jesus is not only excellent because of his awesome power, he is excellent because of his perfect sacrifice. His perfect sacrifice. Here the author points us to the very heart of the gospel. You see, the ultimate problem we're faced with is not a persecution problem. It's not a prosperity problem. It's not an impoverishment problem. It's not a personal relationship problem. Our ultimate problem, beloved, is a purity problem. It's a purity problem. All of us are sinners. And so when the infinitely pure eyes of a holy God looks out over all of mankind, all he sees is impurity, unrighteousness, unholiness. And that presents the greatest problem mankind could ever face. How can unholy people ever hope to live at peace in the presence of holy God? I mean, that's why we were created, right? We were created to bear the image of God and to live with him in peace and enjoyment forever. But how could we ever hope to come to that end When he is holy and we are unholy. It's clear from the Old Testament that he would never allow an unholy person into his presence. Hence all of the sacrifices. Day after day after day, the temple slaughterhouse was the busiest place in the community. How can unholy people be made pure? The answer is, of course, that we have no hope at all when we look to ourselves. We have a disease for which the greatest scientific minds could never invent a cure. And that's because sin is a spiritual disease, not a physical one. Our only hope is that God would look at us with pity and deal with us tenderly, with mercy and grace. And that is what he did When God's heir, who is the creator, radiator, sustainer of all things, became like one of us so that we could be made pure. How pure do we need to be before God? It's not a relative thing. I know Brent goes out once a week to the 
university campus, takes a teenager or two with them now and then. They're always asking people questions that cause them to reveal what they believe about what it takes to stand in the presence of holy God. But there is no ambiguity about what it requires. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Because Matthew 5, in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us what is required. When we talk about righteousness, holiness, purity, how pure do we have to be? How righteous do we have to be? How holy do we have to be in order to be able to stand in peace in the presence of God? To live in heaven as we all desire, right? How pure do we have to be? You ask your average man on the street, and they'll tell you, we just hope, I just hope that on the final day, God will see, yes, all of my sin, of course, but that God will see all of the good things that I've done as well, and the good will balance out the bad. And, of course, the answer to that just logically is, does that work in the court of law anywhere in the world? Well, Judge, I know I killed him, but, you know, I was a Boy Scout. I went to church. I gave money. I did all these wonderful things. And the judge is going to say, you still committed murder. And all of that other stuff, that's great, but it has no bearing on the fact that you broke the law. You are a lawbreaker. You are a sinner. And there will be no sin in my presence. You are guilty. The wages of sin is what? Death. Okay, so if we're not going to experience death, then what are we going to do? We need righteousness. Jesus explains in Matthew 5, 20. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He says so many wonderful things here. For I say to you, Matthew 5, 20, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Say, wow. Greater than the scribes and Pharisees? I mean, they're the guys who do it better than anybody else, right? Well, tell me, Jesus, how righteous is that? Can we quantify this? Because I really want it. And I really want to accomplish this. I don't want to go to hell. I don't even want to go to purgatory. I want to go straight to heaven. How righteous am I going to have to be? Greater than the Pharisees and scribes? Yes. How righteous is that? Look across the page. Same chapter, verse 48. Therefore, Jesus speaking says, You are to be perfect. How perfect? As your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect righteousness. Uh oh. That's a problem. Unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, unless my righteousness is equal to the Father, you know what he's saying? He's saying if you want to go to heaven, you've got to be as good as God. You've got to be as holy as God is holy. You've got to be as righteous as God is righteous. You've got to be as good as God. You say, well, I've already blown that. 
A million times I've already blown that. How am I ever going to be as good as God? Do you see why this puts man in an ultimate predicament? Do you see why this is man's ultimate problem? I mean, where are sinners like you and me supposed to get that kind of righteousness? Where are sinners like you and me supposed to get that kind of purity? One thing's for certain. We can't get it from within or inside ourselves because it's not there. Give me all the self-esteem theology in the world. There isn't any righteousness in there. And so how are we ever going to be righteous? Do you see, beloved, even though Jesus was God, he gave it up in order to give us righteousness. We don't have any righteousness in ourselves. If we are going to have any kind of holiness that will please God, a holiness that is equal to his holiness, we must get it from outside of ourselves. The reformers in Latin used to call it extra nos, outside of self, outside of ourselves. They called it an alien righteousness. It's got to come from somebody else. I could never be that righteous. I could never be as good as God. And so where am I going to get that righteousness? It's got to come from there. Not only do I have to have righteousness, but all of these sins that I've committed, they've got to be paid for. So where am I going to get someone to pay for all of those sins and give me righteousness? We need both components, not just one. I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Some of you have told me, you know, keep us turning our Bibles because it gets warm in there. (laughs) Philippians 2. Start with verse 5. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's writing to churches and he's saying, you need to have an attitude towards one another that's an attitude of humility. Now let me describe what true humility looks like. And in the process, tell you, about, tell you something about Jesus. Verse 5, Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, Even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Do you see it, beloved? Even though Jesus was God and is God, he willingly gave up the privileges that are associated with being God in order to become like one of us, in order to take our just punishment on a Roman cross and give us his righteousness. We deserve to die. He died in our place. He deserved to be exalted and glorified alone. But we will be glorified with him forever. Why? Because he made purification for sin. The gospel doesn't get any clearer than this, beloved. I mean, it just doesn't get any clearer. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, how 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It's just another way of saying, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the great exchange. He became poor so we could become rich. He was treated as unholy so that we could be treated as if we were perfectly holy. It's what happened at the cross. That's grace, beloved. That's grace. Impure people can become perfectly holy in the eyes of God when they cling to Jesus for the righteousness they desperately need, don't have, and can't earn. Have you entrusted your eternal life to Jesus? The purity he secured by his blood and righteousness is infallibly applied to every believing heart. Do you believe he is your only hope of eternal life? Have you entrusted yourself to his eternal care? That God has made you pure because of Jesus. And he has become our excellent Christ. I love that phrase. It's taken from 1 Peter. Joe Oliver used it here at Thanksgiving when he was giving testimony of the grace of God in his family in the midst of these horrible diseases that they have had to endure over the years and yet have done it joyfully. To see that brother stand up here and talk about our excellent Christ should do something to our hearts. And brothers and sisters, if you're sitting here listening to the gospel and saying, oh, I wish he would say something that's a little more engaging, new, then you're missing the whole point. This is our excellent Christ. He is the only reason that we live and move and have our being. And so the author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is the creator of all things, the heir of all things, the radiator of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, the sustainer of all that exists, and the purifier of every believing heart. But there's more, lastly, at least for today. He is excellent because... He is ruler of all. Verse 3 again, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Majesty on high refers to God, the Godhead. Right hand is the place of honor and authority. It's the place that Peter and James, the sons of Zebedee, or James and John, the sons of Zebedee, wanted to get their mom to ask Jesus to give to them. This is the right hand of Almighty God. If you still have your finger in Philippians 2, I didn't finish reading this section. Because like Paul, the author of Hebrews puts two things together. That should never be separated. He humbled himself and made purification for sins and then, start with verse 9, for this reason, 
God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is our glorious Christ. When Jesus finished his mission here on earth by way of the cross and an empty tomb, rising again from the dead, he ascended back to his eternal home. And when he arrived there, he took his seat that had been his through all of eternity past, the seat at the right hand of the Father. But this makes perfect sense if Jesus really is the creator. If he really is the heir of all things, if he really is the brightness of God's glory, the representation of God in flesh, the sustainer of all that exists, if all of that is true, he does indeed belong at the right hand of God the Father. Nobody else could ever take that seat. Because he is God. Why did the author of Hebrews think Jesus Christ is worthy of our confidence? Above all other confidences? Why did he believe he is worthy of our loyalty above all other loyalties? Why did he believe and want us to believe that he is greater than any comfort or prosperity? And greater than any suffering or persecution that we could endure? Because he is God. Jesus Christ is nothing less. There is nothing that makes God God that Jesus did not have. He was all of God, or as the old theologians used to say, he is very God of very God. You say, well, I thought he was human. There is nothing that a man is that Jesus was not. And there is nothing that God is that Jesus is not. He is the God-man. He is very God of very God come in flesh. That's the whole Christmas story, is it not? Amen. There is nothing that makes God God that Jesus is not. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a superstar rabbi. He is eternal God in flesh, the eternal Savior of all who believe. There is no such thing as having peace with God apart from this point of beginning. And there is no way to live the Christian life in security and in power apart from the understanding and embrace and love for all that Christ is. The author of Hebrews does not just want us to know theology. He wants us to love this Christ in every conceivable way from the heart as we love our spouse and would die for her or for him. So he would have us love Christ and has made it the first of all commandments. Love the Lord your God 
with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And Jesus told the Pharisees, you think you're sons of God. If God were your father, you would love me. Where does that kind of love come from? It comes from seeing the eternal excellencies of Jesus Christ and know that that being, that glorious being above all beings knows me and loves me and died for me and is going to have me sit with him next to the Father in glory someday. Amen. We should never get over that. But oh, how prosperity dulls our affections. And oh, how persecution, not just persecution, but problems. Some of you are struggling with career issues. Some of you are struggling with health issues. I know it. I pray for you. Some of you are dealing with severe relationship issues. How do you, how do you endure that? There's only one way. It starts with knowing who Jesus Christ is and then doing something else. But C.S. Lewis, regarding the first thing, says this, I am trying. By the way, so am I. And the author of Hebrews is, so am I. I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as the great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must never say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is the poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at his face. And you could call him God. Amen. But you must make your choice. Right. He is God. It starts with the knowledge of who God is. And these precious Jewish believers had a choice to make too. Persecution had forced them into a place where they must decide whether Jesus Christ is really worthy of their eternal loyalty and trust. Was he really worth the hardships? Was he really worth all of the devastating experiences and the seizure of their property that we'll see later? Was he worthy of the sacrifices they would have to make? And these are the same questions you and I must answer. Is Jesus Christ worthy of our eternal hope even when the bottom drops out of our bank account? Even when you find yourself unemployed or childless or widowed or ill? Even when it costs you friendships and family unity? Is he really worth all of that? And how do we find ourselves sustained in all of that? We first believe that he is. And then secondly, Hebrews 12, 2. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand 
of the throne of God. We realize, number one, that He is God. And then number two, we fight the fight of faith every day. Pray, God, keep my eyes focused on Christ. Keep my heart there. Keep my will there. Keep my emotions there. Keep my soul there. And don't ever let me lose sight of Him. And when I do, rebuke me, Father, graciously. And grant me repentance. Because I would see Him. And be like Him. If your hope is bound up in Jesus Christ alone, the author of Hebrews is saying to these persecuted saints, then your hope is eternally secure. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is our excellent representer of God, sustainer, purifier, and he is our majestic ruler.